Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is Nat Turney with my brother, John, as always. Say, hey, John. Hey, John. Thank you. I just figured we'd keep this thing going. There's no sense in changing up the formula at this point. No. We have lived and breathed uh, by the campiness of our introductions, and so we might as well just keep rolling. But today we have with us an amazing guest, and I hope I pronounce your name right, Shonda Ja. You were trained well. Oh, see, I just got off the phone with uh, with Meg Calvin. And I said, hey, remind me how to say Shonda's name. I knew the first name, but she, I wasn't sure about the Ja part. So, <laughs> man, let me give you a quick, quick, and this is by no means going to come anywhere close to telling you everything about Shonda, but let's, uh, this is what I have for you as by way of introduction, okay? Shonda is an anti-oppression consultant who particularly loves helping organizations get diversity, equity, and inclusion teams off the ground. Shonda is the founder and former executive director of the Oakland Peace Center, a collective of 40 organizations working to create equity, access, and dignity as the means of creating peace in Oakland and the Bay Area. She's an ordained pastor with a master's in public policy. Shonda is comfortable in the pulpit, on the picket line, or hanging out with friends and friends-to-be over a good cup of tea, maybe some coffee, I don't know, um, and a good story. I'll do a cappuccino. A cappuccino? I make a mean cappuccino. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> They're currently working on their fifth book for Chalice Press, and there's way, way more I could have read. Man, I went through your website, and there's so much more here, but I, I'll leave it there and leave some meat on the bone, as they say, for you to introduce yourself and tell us all about you. Welcome to the podcast, Shonda. A little bit of background about me that kind of fits with the theme of the show is in my bio, I kind of hid all of the churchy stuff because I'm actually an ordained pastor in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. My father's Hindu, my mother's Scottish Presbyterian. So I grew up with two different faith traditions present in my home, but I did go to church from a very young age. I'm not going to lie. My relationship with Jesus is very uncomplicated. Jesus has been my best friend since I was three years old. And at the same time, I've seen how the church was weaponized against all sorts of people. You know, the fact that that I had friends who loved me and my family dearly, who prayed every day for my father not to end up in eternity of burning flames of damnation because mm. he was a Hindu, even though he was considerably nicer than the vast majority of Christians <laughs> I'd ever come across, right? So, right. you know, so that's the context I grew up in. In Akron, Ohio was where my family immigrated to when we moved to this country. And so it's interesting because on the one hand, I am deeply committed to my faith and to spirituality and to uh, what I think is a gospel of liberation. I often say to people that every single passage in the Bible is actually about liberation. Sometimes it's about how we failed at it. Sure. But depending on how we've been trained to read it, that comes through. And it all has to do with the training we've gotten. At the same time, because so many people I care about and want to work with have been so badly harmed by institutional religion, mm -hmm. I tend to bury the fact that that's part of my foundations so that we can have a relationship with each other. And over time, as we build trust. Honestly, it's easier for me to come out as queer than it is for me to come out as Christian in some of the spaces I work in, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I can see because that. Because the church has done so much harm. I don't mean to laugh, but that, that is... It's real. Like, like oddly funny and true yeah. and sad. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for that reason, that's why I'm super excited to be with y'all because I feel like my bio, I was talking with our mutual friend, Meg, and I was saying, you know, the reality is the best thing I ever did for my ministry was to become a not pastor, um, right? So there's something about I get to do ministry better because that's not my working title right now. Yeah, and don't, don't you find that that even, gosh, that, that term pastor is so loaded anyway. Yep. And in certain circles, man, that's an instant barrier um, that, yeah. that is overcomeable. Yes. But it's an, sometimes an unnecessary one. Right. There's no sense in putting up roadblocks that don't need exactly. to be there. John, I know John calls himself the unpasture. Yeah. Right. So I, th- yeah. I think he, I think he gets where you're coming from. Exactly. John's also a bit of a, of a firebrand. So he does what he wants, man. So <laughs> but you guys are actually pretty close to each other. You're in, you're in Oakland, right? I'm in Oakland. Yeah. And so yeah. John's in, well, I'm in, I'm in Eureka adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, wait, like where the, are you? I'm in Eureka, California. Well, I'm in Neyland, California, which oh, is, which nice. is, uh, like 35 minutes east of Eureka. I'm up in the mountains behind Eureka. Oh, that's gorgeous. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm saying I love here. Eureka. They have a really good brewery in town. Yeah, they yeah, do. They yeah, got a couple yeah, of them, actually. Yeah. Yeah. We have a Lost Coast brewery, which is probably the. We can talk about beer now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'm in. I like you more and more by the second. That's amazing. <laughs> Although I got to say my favorite beer in all of California is the Thelonious Monk dark beer in Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg. See, yep. yeah, John and I, I, I just Monk. visited that brewery last year, year before. Oh, um, I love such it. a, I love that brewery. I, I was obviously John and I were, you know, we're siblings. So we were, we were born and raised in the same place. Yes. But um, I currently reside in Texas, but we have some good craft beer out here too, but California's got some amazing stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Back to the whole unpasture thing. I get, I get that. You know, we were, in fact, I was just talking to our mutual friend, friend <laughs> our mutual fiend, um, <laughs> Meg Calvin, who has now made an appearance four times on this show. Um, <laughs> Meg, when you listen to this, be flattered. Well, I was talking about some words that I feel are almost unreclaimable, if that's a word. I think I just made that up. Um, so I was, an example I used was the word evangelical. Like I can identify, even though I feel like in the truest sense of the word, I am 100% evangelical. But because of the instant connection with a certain political ideology and a certain brand of politics, the second you say evangelical, that triggers some sort of reaction for some folks. Um, are there words that we just need to maybe abandon to communicate better who we really are? And maybe just get rid of some old language. What do you think? I think sometimes that's true. It's interesting because there's a, a lot of the work I do these days is to work with nonprofits and corporations and faith communities uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the landscape of language in that arena is constantly evolving and re-evolving. And so there's a lot of conversation about, should we be talking about people of color? Should we be talking about BIPOC? Uh, black and indigenous and other people of color? Should we be talking be BIPOC, black, brown, indigenous and other people of color? Uh, there's all sorts of constant evolutions. There are folks who now have idea teams because they're doing diversity, equity and inclusion, but also access or Jedi teams because they've added justice. And so I think the language can help us clarify um, 
I've got a friend, uh, Jose Morales, and he and I have dabbled with identifying as evangelical because people know what we believe. And it's so jarring to hear people like us, brown folks, who have a liberationist take on the text, who are, in his case, LGBTQ affirming, and in my instance, actually queer, um, claiming that term of evangelical and saying, Actually, we're going back to the Greek, to euangelion, the good news, the right. good news of liberation. And I think it can work only to jar people, shake them up, make them ask what it is they actually mean by that term. Because if yeah. their response is, no, you're not evangelical, then they're getting really clear on what constitutes right. good news for them. And then we can have an honest conversation, right? For sure. So I think it's always interesting to play around with that. But do you feel like, um, kind of working off what Nat said, someone that looks like Nat and me, the throwing out the word evangelical, is, I mean, is it jarring in the right way? Right. Uh, so for someone like me, if I said, hey, I'm evangelical, I, I think the conversation is, is kind of shut down. Yes. If I was to use that word, which I wouldn't. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It evokes so much. Right. So Nat, Nat and I agree on that one, I believe. Nat and I don't agree on the, the use of the word Christian. So I, I no longer claim myself as a Christian. I don't use that word. It's not a word I would, I would use. If someone asks me, are you a Christian? My first question would be, well, what, what does that word mean to you? Yes. And then, and then so from their definition of Christian, I would be able to say yes or no, I am that or no, I'm not that. But I, would ne- I, I don't use that word. I don't claim that word as my own anymore. Doesn't mean I won't in the future. Yeah, but at the moment, it's 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 another word for me that just it it's it's. I feel it 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 might have lost something. Nat Nat is I think holding on to it and hoping he can claim it. And, well, and- no, I agree that it's lost something. <laughs> no, I I hundred percent agree that it just like the word evangelical, just like the word religion, just like some of these other words that have become so closely associated with something um, very particular. I'm just stubborn enough at some point to go, you know what? Fuck you. I'm not giving it up. You don't get to, yeah, you don't get to keep all of my words. You you can have that one. You can have that one. I'm keeping this one. And there might be a time when, when that's not so useful. I understand, um, you know, what you're saying about sometimes the unnecessary roadblocks. I will say this in certain circumstances and with certain people, if I sense that's going to be a roadblock, I won't use it. You know, there's no sense. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not intentionally trying to lay landmines that are going to inhibit some kind of connection. So yeah, like you said, like, like at some point, uh, it'll be easier to come out as Christian <laughs> than to come out as something else and say, okay, actually, I have a confession to make. I do kind of love Jesus a little bit. Yep, um, absolutely. <laughs> so, so I come out, of, I'm, I'm ordained in the Disciples of Christ, which is a very progressive denomination in some fashion, in some ways. And it was really radical back when they started out that to become a member of a disciple's church, all you had to do was proclaim Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. In those days, that was a radical act because there was no creed. There was no other thing you had to sign on to. As long as you believed that, you were allowed at the table. There was no barrier other than believing in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, at this point in time, that's a much more loaded phrase, right? Right. Um, So in the spirit of that radical inclusion intent, when I was the pastor at First Christian Church of Oakland, there were a couple of folks wanting to join the church. One of them was this powerhouse Asian-American feminist theologian who 
She's not post-Christian, but she's also hanging out in Christianity specifically to say, you don't get to take the term away. And then the other person who wanted to join was just this badass labor activist, now a labor lawyer, just killing it, doing amazing stuff. And I said to them, y'all, I'm imagining that it wouldn't be meaningful for you if I asked you if you wanted to proclaim Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior in order to join this church. And they were like, we could live with it. It's fine. And I said, how would you feel about, I commit to following in the path of Jesus? And they were like, yeah, we'll do that. And so without asking the church, because it was a very generous congregation, that was the words I asked them uh, in worship when they joined the church. And afterwards, I was talking to one of the elders of the church and I was like, so I changed the... Uh, membership vow. And he was like, yeah, I noticed that. And I was like, what I asked them to do is actually harder than what you got asked to do. And he was like, yeah, I noticed that too. And that was what was beautiful about it is they were both like, oh, everybody was like, oh, following in the way of Jesus is not fucking around. Right. Um, I can yeah. my, I can say I believe this about somebody and that's fine. It doesn't obligate me to anything. Right. But following in the way of Jesus asks a lot more. Um, and if we got a term like Christ, Christian means I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Well, you got to ask, what are we being saved from? Mm, and I think right. that's a really important question. So in that way, that terminology actually still does matter to me because I want to know what you think you're being saved from. Right. Well, that's a good question. So let's let's ask that question. So if if Christ is Savior, and I believe He is, I would I would affirm that. What is it exactly we're being saved from or what are we being saved for? Well, you know, it's actually why I wrote uh, my last book, Liberating Love, which is a 365-day devotional, because I think that this notion of what it is we need to be saved from, I think at a heart and soul level, most of us are longing to be saved from the same things. We're longing to be saved from insecurity, and that could be economic insecurity. It could be insecurity around our safety. It could be all sorts of different kinds of ways in which we are vulnerable, right? There are good ways of being vulnerable, but I mean vulnerable to harm. We want to be protected from that. We want to be saved from those threats to our well-being. I think the other thing we want to be saved from, many of us, is isolation, being alone. I think one of the most toxic parts of the American myth is the myth of individualism, which is sugarcoating a culture of isolation. And so I think one of the other things that we are longing to be saved from is being isolated, whether that's from something bigger than ourselves or from human connection. Um, we're longing to be saved from isolation. And I do think that we are longing to be saved from having to fight for our own sense of dignity and self-worth. And the interesting thing about those things is this is what in my anti-racism work is a driving force. We are seeking for all of our people to be safe. We are seeking for all of our people to be free. We are seeking for all of our people to be seen. But ironically, as horrific um, as the actions of, say, January 6th were, and how much we need to establish accountability, what were those folks longing for? They were longing to feel safe. They were longing to feel free. They were longing to feel seen. They were longing for connection. And so I think that in some ways, this is why a gospel of liberation can actually create connections like nothing else can. 
I think that's the way in which I hope that Jesus, God, can save us from each other. <laughs> yeah, and it's too bad you couldn't get those people in a room, sit them across the table from each other. copies of the devotional. You should, totally. <laughs> and say, listen, you all want the same thing. This is a, this is a, a common human need to be seen, right? To be significant, yep. to feel like you have some power over your own life and the, the choices that aren't always just being made for you. So I, I, I've struggled because, you know, that segment of society, I, it, there's so many, there's so much about that that bothers me, but I have prayed, God help me see the commonality because I, I, I can sense the genuine frustration. Yeah. Whether, whether it's real or imagined or, or just, a perspective issue, but you can't deny the reality of, of, of whatever their sense of angst is. Right. That they are that they are all those things you just said, that they are not being seen, that they are not being heard, and that decisions are being made for them. Right. And it's just too bad they can't turn that same sense and feel empathy for the people across the aisle who are feeling the exact same thing yep. and find some common ground. But man, I agree with you. Uh, I love all that, uh, the, talking about what, what we're saved from. One of the first dominoes to fall in my deconstruction and all of this, you know, that, that we've all been going through was this notion that God was, was there to save me from some future subterranean torture chamber. Once that mythology began to kind of fall apart, then the deeper questions could be asked. You know, like the ones that you just answered, you know, what, what, what are we really and I was just talking to Meg. It's really interesting. Meg, that's five, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm keeping track. Um, I was literally just talking to Meg about how I'm going to wrap. She's helped me write this book. And one of the ways I want to wrap it up is talking about is this deep, deep need for connection and exactly what you just talked about this the, and how religion actually comes in and, and, competes against that connection. It actually fights against it. It creates more isolation because we've, we haven't just decided as a culture that individuality and individualism is, is important, but we've also turned the gospel into a very individualistic salvation message, right? Yep. And so now my relationship with God is between me and God and it's, it can be very isolating. And so that, that need for connection is so deep. Yeah, man, I just resonate with, with everything you're talking about. I have never felt more alone than when I was knee deep in church. When I was, when I was trying to follow whatever path the church told me I had to, to be righteous and be good and be better. And you become, you become everything that you say. So in this place that's supposed to give me freedom, I found that I was being more isolated, that I had to isolate myself because if I didn't, people would see the real me. And did it feel like the real you was a threat? I, you know, I, I, in a younger version of me, yes, because you know I was never going to be—I never was going to be good enough for God. I was never so. If I was never good enough for God, I was definitely never good enough for the congregation. Yeah. Um, and then you talk about self-worth, and then uh, as you're as you're looking at yourself and you're listening to the pastor, and he's telling you these are all the things you need to do to be right with God, and you're realizing you're failing at every single one of them. So your self-worth, your self self-worth also just plummets, right? So you have no self-worth. You, you feel like you're worthless, that you're a dirty, rotten sinner, piece of shit, uh, all those kinds of, kinds of things. And then, uh, and then the, another one you said was to be seen. And then you become part of a congregation that's just a homogenized mess. 
and you aren't seen because the best way to hide is to not be seen. Yes. The best way to fit in is to, is to find a, a niche that you can hide in or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, so that's, you know, those are some of my issues with church. Well, the goal is to not be seen to, in order to stay safe. I mean, those end up being competing needs, right? Right. Right. To be seen and to be safe end up competing with each other, which is heartbreaking. Right. And then what you, what do you do is, as, as you realize that your, your life is kind of spiraling out of control because you're trying to hide all this from everybody. And so then you go the other way, right? And you double down and you, you know, I can, I, I, I know Nat has similar stories. I, I would assume you might do, you might as well. I don't know. But, you know, so there's these moments where I decide I'm going to, I'm all in for God again, right? I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it all to God and I'm out. Yeah. Uh, there's a story that I've, I, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I know I've told other people where I, I just decided that secular music was my problem, that I, I had to stop listening. To it. I could only listen to Christian music. So me and my best friend at the time took my BB gun into my backyard with all my CDs and I shot them all. I broke them Oof. all. And I got rid of everything that was not Christian. And at the end of the day, that just, it just doesn't work. Because first of all, <laughs> first of all, you I want them all back. Yeah, well, yeah, first I'm like, <laughs> man, you know, a week later, yeah, you just want them all back. And this yeah. is back at a time when there, you couldn't download anything. There was no streaming of anything. So if you didn't have it on CD or tape or record, you just yeah. didn't have it, right? Yeah. And so then I go there and I'm, you know, like, going back to the record store and buying back what I just destroyed because I realized, well, that was stupid. And <laughs> Also, this music's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been there. I've done it in some sort of religious fervor, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I'd never thought about this before, but I'm, so I'm currently obsessed with the podcast maintenance phase, uh, which deconstructs diet culture. You don't expect it to be relevant to your life, but I promise you it is. Um, and what's wild about it is one of their points, and you probably know this, if not from experience, then from the data, like 93% of people who go on diets have gained weight or made, ended up at their previous weight or gained weight right. uh, six years after the diet, within six years after the diet. Um, and I mean, for many, it's within months, right? And part of that is because we're not built for a life that is grounded in oppressive restriction. It's not possible right. to live that way. Plus, God built us for joy. God built us for pleasure. And by, by withholding this thing that actually was part of God's intent, we do damage to ourselves. And part of the point of the, you know, diet culture is I started out as somebody who was 20 pounds overweight and was told that I was going to die as a result. I spent 20 years trying to lose that 20. I've gained a hundred pounds. This is my new normal. Right. Um, turns out, I'm actually super healthy. Like all the medical charts show I'm in great shape. I'm just fat. Uh, <laughs> but the irony is in those early days, if people had said your health indicates that you're doing great, I might be 80 pounds lighter now. But because right. of a culture that kept telling me I was inadequate and I was too much um, and that I was going to die um, and that I was also offensive to those around me, I yeah. kept trying to restrict myself and squeeze into a box over and over. And I had never thought until you were sharing just now, John, that's like church. Yeah. Now, not all church. I know. Hashtag not sure. all church. Well, sure, um, yeah. I want to be it's, real clear about that. That's implied, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Standard caveats always apply. 
but the, but the church writ large, right? I mean, yeah. as an institution has trafficked in this sort of, of shaming, really, if yeah. we're just going to be honest about it. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast that Peter Rollins did with Rob Bell a couple of years ago. I imagine that was a very boring conversation. Neither of them has much meaningful stuff to say. Both those guys are just turds, you know? I don't like those guys. <laughs> That's just because they won't come on my show. <laughs> <laughs> this will make them want to, though, this right. conversation we're having right now. And me calling him a turd? That's actually... <laughs> <laughs> I've already called that Rob Bell once through a friend of his, so I don't think he's ever coming on, but um, I love Rob. Rob, if you're listening, you know I love yes. you, buddy. Huge fan. A huge fan, but uh, Peter Rollins had, had talked about prohibition, you know, and in his, you know, right. obviously his very beautiful Irish lilt. Um, everything he says sounds smart, but um, but it's essentially what you're saying is, is what he was saying is that prohibition is is just it's the absolute worst way to curtail behavior. We know this from, like you said, either from the data or from experience. At the second, tell you, I was, I'll tell you a story. I was walking down the street one day. I was teaching at this school. And I went for a walk. And uh, on my way back, I walked past this guy's yard and he's got this little sort of cement retaining wall and he's got this really lovely manicured lawn. And all of a sudden, like in the middle of this lawn, he'd put a sign that said, uh, do not walk on the grass. And it never once occurred to me to walk on this yes. kid's grass. I would have actually had to climb steps and go out of my way, which yeah. I really all of a sudden wanted to do. <laughs> If for no other reason than to take a picture of me on his grass with a picture, but the scientists that don't, I mean, there's something built into us that, that bucks that sort of prohibition, um, which then makes me wonder, think, so let me ask you this. This is completely off the rails. Knowing this and knowing that this is how humans are built, why the hell did God put Adam and Eve in a garden with one giant tree and say, whatever you do, don't touch that? <laughs> Because we believe that is literally what happened. Right. Um, <laughs> well, well, hold on a minute. Hold on. Are you saying that it might not literally have happened that way? It's interesting because I, I, I tend to I tend to get my marching orders from uh, womanist theologians, right? So womanist theologians have gotten to the point at this point, this wasn't true early on, in, which is kind of, kind of like black feminism. Um, but for but womanist theologians... At this point, they're kind of like, all right, we know that we worship a God of love and we worship a God of liberation, a God who wants the thriving of black women and black gender non-binary folks. So when the Bible undermines that, we know that's not God. We know that's the people who wrote the Bible who got that wrong because they had a particular agenda. So I think the interesting question to ask about that Genesis story is, the people who were writing that story, what was going on in their community that they needed this particular myth to help their community navigate a challenge? And I wonder what that challenge was. I don't have a good answer to that, but like all of the story, I also believe that all of the stories in the Bible are stories of truth, whether they're true stories or not. Amen um, to that. And so I wonder what the truth within that story is. I'll tell you one of the things that I learned from that story is, wow, a society that preferences men means men are less likely to take accountability for their own actions. That's a really clear lesson in that passage, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's evident immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, that, that woman you gave me. Mm. <laughs> First of all, gave you? What the hell's going on with that? 
<laughs> not even to delve into that there are two different creation stories within that, right? There's one that mm-hmm. actually literally mm-hmm. says that man and woman were created together. Yep. And another one that says that woman was created from man. And we're within the same book of Genesis. And we're just supposed to pretend like we don't notice that. Yes. And that's, I mean... And that God is clearly both genders, right? In that, well, clearly, in that yes. version. Yes, yeah. but he still Absolutely. prefers being a man. I don't understand. <laughs> God's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't get that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think God keeps getting ah, I think God keeps getting misgendered because when oh, yeah. God speaks about God's self, right? In that Genesis story, God says, Man and woman, we will create them. We right. being the in our image. In our right? image. So my image is both male and female. And then once it switches to the third person is when God starts getting referenced as male. See, see, now they, I think gendering God at all is misgendering God. Although I think that God may be all genders rather than no gender. And I think that that's an important distinction. Okay, I, I can buy that. So, so wherever <laughs> you land on the spectrum, yeah. you have, and you should be able to find yourself in the image of God. Yeah. Right? Exactly. There should not be a exactly. place where you find yourself excluded from that image because you don't fit some binary, you know, definition of, 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 of gender or what or whatever. God captures the fullness of gender. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that I love that. I, I love that idea that, you know, that, that God encompasses all of that. Yeah. Um, because I hate the idea that somebody would ever feel excluded from that identity. Yep. You yep. know, it, it, it would break my heart, you know. And so and I know um, that you've probably experienced that in your life. Um, and you obviously are fighting for people who experience that on the daily right. in their lives. Um, right. So I, I, I very much applaud the work that you do. I, I wonder too, because I, I can't remember who it was that, that talked about this. Um, but you know, there's this there is this notion among scholars that the Genesis story and a lot of the stories uh, in the Old Testament written down post Babylonian exile, mm-hmm. and so there is a there is a sense in which some of these stories are written as polemic. You know that they are listen, listen they're just they're just offering up their versions of the stories coming out of a culture where they've been inculcated with, you know, or indoctrinated inside of whatever mythologies that they've been exposed to. And now they're saying, no, no, no. One thing I do love about the Old Testament is I do see, I do see, I do see it as having a trajectory. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, even, even some of the things in the Old Testament that are now in, by contrast to where we are today might still seem you know, maybe barbaric even or, or antiquated, by comparison, we're still steps forward. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth sounds barbaric, except when you understand that prior to that, it was an, an, an eye for a village. Exactly. So, so rather than a permission to seek retribution, it's at least a limitation on that retribution. Let's at yep. least keep a proportional response, right? Exactly. Um, you took my eye, I'm going to wipe out your family. No, 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 sir. An eye right. for an eye and a tooth for two. Let's at least keep it equitable, right? Right. <laughs> so, exactly. So when we can read the text through that context, um, I think, I think that's an, I think that's, that's a way to reconcile some of those stories that seem tough. And I also think that the, I I also think that those, I mean, what the Hebrew Bible does is tells a good story, right? Like there, there's something that ends up being a little bit more long lasting about a good story. Like we can still wrestle with, well, what was going on? Well, what did get hidden? Well, what did the, what was going on for the community that this story would be helpful to them? Uh, Which is a lot more helpful than, 
and don't hear me throwing shade at Paul, although I can, uh, with his stuff, it's much more didactic. It's much more, here's what you got to do. And you have to be bringing an intention to notice the story underneath those dictates. Absolutely. Um, You know, we quote him talking about uh, love is patient, love is kind, love forbears all things. We use it in uh, weddings all the time. And you have to bring a lot of intention to say, wait a second. What was going on in the church in Corinth that he needed to tell them that? That means they weren't being patient. They weren't being kind. They weren't be forbearing. They weren't, you know, they weren't doing any of those things. That church must have been hella messed up. Yeah. Right? And so, of course, he's driven to say, y'all, this is not how community functions. Yeah. Uh, but you have to bring so much more intention to see the story that is relatable in Paul compared right. to any of that stuff in the Hebrew Bible where you're like, oh, yeah, that's like the folk tales or the fables or the children's stories I grew up with where they're trying to teach me a lesson, but they're making it interesting. Right, um, right. Which makes it easier to translate in some ways, honestly. Well, no, and there's a lot of, I mean, it, there's a lot of interesting subtext. There's a lot of interesting, mm-hmm. honestly, the story of Jonah getting swallowed by a fish is... Yeah. Okay. Interesting. The more interesting questions to me are 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 the are all of the things underneath that story. Yeah. You know, what is Jonah's problem? What's his <laughs> issue with the Ninevites? Why doesn't he want to go help them out? Why is he being such a dick? I mean, I'll tell you what. <laughs> you know? We want to talk about a story that came alive in a whole different way. Um, was when our country. Uh, so after 9-11, the, uh, the then president talked about the axis of evil, right? Which, which was completely arbitrary and made up and for sure. political Just purposes. countries and go, yeah, yeah exactly. So it was, it was Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan? No, North Korea, no, I think, was North part Korea, of the axis. I know, I was like, North Korea was in it. So who yeah. got left out of that? Iran? North Korea, Iran... I don't think Iraq was powerful enough to be an axis of anything. Well, they were who we were going in to bomb. That's why I'm, yeah. I can't believe that it's now I have to Google so it. recent. And now, yeah, go ahead and Google it while I'm telling this story. The axis um, of evil. Yep, who was in the <laughs> axis of evil? Because it was just three countries. And I feel like it North was. Korea was one of them too. But we were bombing, we were getting ready to bomb two of them. Anyhow, uh, as he was talking about, this axis of evil. Yeah, it was Iran, Iraq, North Korea. Sorry, go ahead. Iran, Iraq, <laughs> North Korea. They left <laughs> Afghanistan out of it, even though in theory, Afghanistan was what was driving us to war in the first yeah, place. They were like axis of evil adjacent. Well, Gosh I think, darn it, I, think I hate had, everybody. I think we had to leave <laughs> Afghanistan out because I think, I think we were using them as a place to launch from and we couldn't really call them an axis uh, of evil if we were like using them as a, we as were, a place to launch our, our, our planes from. Wow. <laughs> I believe, sure. I believe we were. Wow. We were, we, you know, you know the, the enemy of my enemy, right? Becomes your friend for a moment. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the, and, and I could be completely making that up. So I'm not a historian. Don't, don't <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to your story. Wild. So anyhow, back to, back to Jonah. So we're looking at, so we're looking at this axis of evil and this big caricature that's been made and the erasure of the fact that on the, on, September 12th, thousands of people gathered in Tehran Square lighting candles and praying for all of us in this country. You know, all of that goes out the window because it doesn't fit the narrative. And then in the lectionary, we come across the story of Jonah. And where's Nineveh? Turns out it's in modern day Iran. And suddenly 
there's this other layer. What does it mean if your people perceive a country as a dangerous, dangerous threat, and then you're told, go to that country and tell them that God loves them and wants to forgive them and give them another chance? How much rage would the average American have had when they were being told by their president that Iran was irredeemably evil and they got a message from God saying, go to Iran and save the people. I mean, not save the people in the modern evangelical sense, but give them, a, give them the chance to make things right. And I think that that's one of the fascinating things that the Bible can offer to us is it forces us to check our impulses because our initial reaction is, what could Nineveh have done that Jonah hated them so much? Well, what did Iran do? Um, and I think that's a really interesting question. Now, the flip side of that is for those of us who have lived under oppression, you know, if my grandfather had been told, go to England and save them, his understandable response would be 750,000 people in my state were killed by famine because Britain wanted to steal our food in case they got hungry five years from now. How dare you send me there? So like it works in both directions. It works for those of us who are marginalized and oppressed to be like, what does it mean to worship a God who wants to liberate the people who have decimated us. And then on the flip side, for people who have experienced a certain amount of privilege, what does it mean when our government turns a whole country into an enemy um, to oversimplify and convince us that it's justifiable to destroy those people? So all of that shows up in the book of uh, Jonah. Yeah. And, and the least interesting part of the whole story involves a fish. It's the whale, yeah. <laughs> like, at this point, who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a nifty little literary device. And, you know, again, to invoke the name of Rob Bell, that's twice for you, Rob. Um, <laughs> I think I remember hearing him standing up uh, back when he was still uh, pastoring Mars Hill. Yeah. I used to listen to his sermons all the time, and he did yeah. a series on Jonah. Um, and that was one of the things he said was like, that's the least interesting thing. If, if the question you asked me is, did, did Jonah really get physically swallowed by, was there even a real Jonah? He's like, I'm already bored. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, who cares? There's, there's, but you understand there's so much more interesting stuff going on here. Let's this talk is about that. The cost of literalism. The yeah, cost of yeah, literalism is yeah. you miss all the good parts of the story. Yeah. It's the, the cost of literalism is boredom. Yeah. It's like, come on, man. What we just talked about for the last few minutes, fascinating. Much more, Way interesting. more interesting than anything, you know, any one of these sort of literalists would have to say about the text. And, you know, and then having to rank, you know, to, to wrangle with the logistics of how many animals Noah could fit on an ark and could the penguins have swam for 40 days or did they have to, you know, I don't know. So all that stuff is just silliness to oh, me. Oh, I never thought about that before. I think that's actually a very good question. Could the penguins have swum for 40 days? I don't know. I mean, somebody had to be left <laughs> off the ark. I mean, well, obviously the dinosaurs were left off the ark, and so were the unicorns. There's no dinosaurs, John. That's just a big conspiracy. Oh, that's oh, right. Okay. I forgot. Yeah, Ken Ham <laughs> proved that to us, didn't he? Right, it, right, 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 right. But I, that, it's endlessly, I, I love I, that. That's one of the things that keeps me coming back to the Bible. Really, you know, when when a more literalist view of that would have me just abandon the whole project. You know, because there's just, 
at that point, you can't deal with the inconsistencies of it. One thing that John and I, had, we had a really interesting discussion with that, uh, with what was that guy's name, the friendly atheist? Uh, yeah, Hem- Hemet Meta. Yeah, yeah, super nice guy, um, lives up to his moniker, yep. 100%, super friendly guy. But one of the things that I, that I want to push back on atheists about all the time is they're every bit sometimes as fundamentalist in their approach to the Bible as the most fundamentalist fundamentalist. Yep. And so, and they just use, and he, he did it. Uh, I'm not. I'm not throwing shade right. on him at all. But but some who are a little more caustic in their approach, yeah. they come at the Bible the same way. You know, a real, real fundamentalist evangelical will, and then they use that to say, "See, this is all garbage." Yeah. And so they don't want to bring any nuance to the text either. So I appreciate the work that that someone like you can do in asking those really probing questions. Okay, well, what's really going on here? Right. Um, and I'm still chewing on the Genesis one as that you brought up several, you know, 20 minutes ago, I'm still thinking about, that's a really good question. <laughs> that's a really, I, I'm not sure I have a good answer, but I'm going to think about it for a, for a while, you know? I love those kinds of questions. That's that part make of the fun, kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm always surprised when people say they think the Bible's boring. They're like, no, no. Um, certain certain interpretations, yeah, are a little more boring than others. But anyway, that's that's all That's all awesome. Um, John, I cut you off in the middle of a sentence, so man, I'm sorry. I was going to try to steer the conversation back towards more of your like activism and the stuff that you do with that, and uh, and, and kind of use the uh, but using what we're talking about the Bible and you know, being so literal and taking the Bible so literal doesn't that sometimes give certain groups of people permission to other and to separate themselves from different groups of people and then. Because of that, we do create these isolate, isolated groups that we get to then point at and say, see, these people are going to hell. I'm not going to hell. These people over here, um, if they would just, if they would just, you know, fix their problems, they could be more like me. And it, and it gives us this permission to, uh, for lack of a better description, to other them, right? And so it kind of fits into what I, I think what you, what you're doing with the, more of your activism type side of uh, stuff that you're doing. If, if I, if. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and so it's interesting because I think a weird way that white supremacy ends up showing up in these conversations sometimes is the assumption that believing the Bible is real makes people backwards. And I say this because I hang out with a lot of very liberal white Christians who look down, unconsciously look down on communities of color who are active in their faith um, because there is a sense of, Oh, they don't understand. They keep treating the Bible as literal truth. But here's the interesting thing to me. There's an accusation that this is true in immigrant communities and in black communities. And what I find remarkable is that enslavers would teach the Bible to people that they were enslaving. Right. And because the enslavers approached the Bible as kind of an abstract metaphor for life, they didn't realize that the people who were enslaved could listen to those stories and say, okay, God is real and God frees people who are enslaved and God invites people who are enslaved to participate in their liberation, right? And some people right. would accuse, accuse someone of being a literalist for saying that, but at the same time, taking seriously that God is a God of liberation is actually a powerful thing for someone who is suffering under enslavement to do. Similarly, I, 
I've been arrested a couple of times along with fast food workers, and it's not because it's a box to check off. It's more because fast food workers and and the unions that they they work with have learned that if clergy get arrested along with the workers, the clergy are less likely to be abused in jails, right? Oh, okay. Um, and so they have to find clergy of both genders because the jails still function in a bi-gender fashion. And so occasionally I've been asked to be the female clergy who's willing to be arrested along with the workers. So I'm at this uh, McDonald's and we occupy the uh, the inside of the McDonald's and I'm asked to speak and one of the union reps is translating for me into Spanish because my Spanish isn't good enough. So I'm talking to the workers and I'm saying, hey, our Jewish friends just finished a celebration called Passover. Uh, it's when they celebrate their liberation from enslavement. And I say, you know, as a little joke, I'm not saying that Ronald McDonald is like Pharaoh, but, uh, and everybody, you know, everybody laughs. And the woman uh, who's translating for me, she knows how to say Ronald McDonald in Spanish, but then she turns to the person next to her and says, kind of quietly, I don't know how to say Pharaoh in Spanish. And the entire first row of workers say Pharaon because the workers know who Pharaoh is. They work for Pharaoh. There's nothing theoretical about a God of liberation for workers who are living under horrific conditions, right? Yeah, right. And so there's something about bringing these stories from the Bible that sometimes our liberal elite friends, and don't get me wrong, I think that studying the text is really important. I think academic pursuits matter a lot. But sometimes there's this unconscious white supremacy when we talk about, oh, those literalists, because what we mean by that is the people who are doing harm. But there's a different version of, I believe that the God in that text is very real and does things like that, and I want to be on the side of that, that is actually really powerful. Um, and I think that some of the power of the worker organizing I've gotten to be a part of when it is engaged alongside faith is that it engages God as if God is real and as if God is on our side in some really profound ways. I also think that the other gift it brings is we have a tendency for those of us who aren't suffering under horrific conditions in our workplace of thinking of the workers as, you know, this group of nameless, faceless people who need to be experiencing liberation. But they're also church leaders. They're also parents. They're also, you know, community members. They bring a fullness of experience beyond just being employees at a restaurant. And yeah. when we yep. engage faith, they actually get to bring their wisdom into the conversation in a way that often gets ignored. And I think that that's powerful too. Yeah, absolutely. When, when you're talking about a, uh, a literal reading of the Bible, though, what what, what sort of struck me is that Within the story, say of say the Exodus story, the 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 literal truth of that that God is a God of liberation, that God is a God who does not stand for oppression and enslavement of His people, can come through regardless of whether you think you know that that however many people actually that 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 story went down the way it did, right? And so that's the beautiful thing. And I, when I think about a guy like C.S. Lewis, who you know talks about the Bible is in terms of myth, and then he's quick to point out, although I mean. 
a special kind of myth, you know, that, that is meant to convey truth. It's not just yeah. fanciful tales. Um, and, uh, I've gotten a whole ton of, I'm sure you have too. We get a whole ton of pushback from, from some folks when you ever use the word mythology. Right. In connection with the Bible, the people go, well, because in their minds, they've made that connection between mythology and, and, and something, yeah, lie or something fanciful or something, you know, it's a, you know, but even Aesop's fables can, can make truth. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I love the fact that you can you can dig into that text and you can take I think you can very very much take the uh, take those meanings literally say man no that that message you pull from that story regardless of whether or not and I know Jonah Jonah keeps popping in my head for some reason but whatever Noah whatever regardless of whether there was you know two of every animal in the ark or whatever yeah um, whatever truth is being conveyed there though can absolutely be applied right. Absolutely. And we can absolutely, you know, take that to heart. So I love it. Is 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 some of this, um, I meant to ask you this a little earlier, but is some of this kind of the way that you were you were you were taught and brought up in the Disciples of Christ denomination? Is this So I was actually raised I was actually raised in the United Church of Christ. Uh, oh, and okay. I'm really grateful for that. And so yeah, I I was really lucky that the my denomination of in which I was raised and the denomination that I chose to get ordained in both have a sense of we come together as community and wrestle with the text um, as part of their at least theoretical culture. Uh, I had read the Bible through twice by the time I was in eighth grade because my pastor uh, had been trained in Hebrew Bible at Oberlin College right? Um, and so he took the text seriously and he took justice seriously and he expected us to have a certain, so fourth grade, eighth grade, whole way through the, I mean, a children's Bible, but whole way through the Bible. And he made the adults go through a three-year thing that he called the preach through, teach through, where he went through the entire Bible over the course of those three years in both Bible study and in sermons. And in the Bible study, people wrestled with the text with each other. They wrestled with what it meant that the four Gospels didn't tell the identical stories and what was powerful and remarkable and vulnerable about that and how it helped us get to a truth about Christ because in the same way that four eyewitnesses wouldn't see something the same way, blah, blah, right. blah, all of that stuff. Um, how great is it to have gotten raised in that uh, that context? I was really, really lucky. I did hang out with a lot of evangelicals because you can't love Jesus and be in Akron and not hang out with a bunch of evangelicals. <laughs> right. um, but fortunately, both my mother and my church were a counterbalance to the eternity and hell individualism culture that um, that was a part of that. So yeah, I remember going to a Bible study that my evangelical friend and her family were hosting and a woman came in tears running down her face. She was like, I was just listening to the radio and there was this man and he was from China and some missionaries had just saved him and he was sobbing and they said, we don't understand what's going on. You've just found the love of Christ. And he said, but you came too late. My parents and grandparents are going to spend eternity in hell. And this woman is crying because that poor man who is separated from his family who couldn't be saved in time. Oh, Unfortunately, geez. because I had a mother who didn't have much, like I said, she's Scottish Presbyterian. She does not have a lot of patience for foolishness. So she had raised me to be like, yeah, that's not how God works. What kind of God are you worshiping? Who's right. like that? Right. So I'm really grateful that she gave me that context. At the same time, 
the part of the reason I hung out with the evangelicals is because they had a passion that I did not encounter in the mainline church. And that is part of why I love doing faith-rooted organizing, because we get to engage in stuff that really matters, and we get to bring passion, and we get to bring a sense that the divine is in the mix of this work, and we are seeking to be in alignment with the will of the divine as we do this. And it shapes the way we engage each other. It shapes the way we engage people we are opposed to. It doesn't just shape the messaging of the campaign. It shapes the way we do the campaign. That comes through very, very clearly just in our conversation now. Uh, I, I have to say that I, I, I just, I find it refreshing and I can sense, I can sense in you a very strong desire to not, um, to not other people the way that you have been other right. and to not just lump. So I love, there's a, seems like a lot of grace for, for people who, uh, it's easy to throw some shade at and it's easy to lump them all together and say, no, no, the, all those right wing evangelical guys, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, what I'm sensing from you is, no, that's not helpful. Like that does not push the conversation. Right. It also lets me off the hook. Right. If I, if I write them off as just they're bad, I'm good, then I never have to wrestle with the ways in which I contribute to harm either. It lets me off the hook too easy to do that. I I like, stop me if I'm making a connection that's not a connection, but I, I like the way that, you know, people who are sometimes non binary bring that sense of the world too. Like yeah. the world isn't binary. Like the world is, we don't live in a black and white world. We don't live in these clearly delineated lines of this is in and this is out and this is. And so you bring that whole sense of, of a spectrum of thought and a spectrum of identity that, that I, I see then in you that you're, you're, you're also extending that to others as well. And I, I, that, that's a beautiful thing. I love that. I do think there's a non-binary worldview. I think that's right. And that's true for gender identity. Also, my, uh, my friend Gary Sparks, he's a scholar of indigenous Mayan culture in Guatemala. And he spent years in the mountains in Guatemala, built a lot of relationships. And he was telling me that when the first missionaries went to Guatemala, they were trying to translate the Bible into Quiche, which is the indigenous language in the mountains. And as they're getting, as you know, they've gotten to the point where they're Spanish and the the you know the folks they're working with are helping them translate things in, into Quiche. And then they hit this bit about the garden of good and evil. And the indigenous Mayan folks are like, we don't, we don't get it. And they're like, so there's good. And they're like, yep. And they're like, there's bad. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and these missionaries are like, no. And then there's bad. And they're like, okay, uh, we don't understand this. And Gary's point, as he was explaining it to me, was the indigenous Mayan folks did not have a binary notion of good and evil. They had this notion of, you know, kind of like we talk about yin and yang uh, from uh, Chinese Taoist beliefs, right? Of um, there's a balance in the universe, uh, kind of like the dark crystal. If you were allowed to watch that, I don't know what yeah. kind of church you went to as <laughs> yeah. a kid. Um, I love the dark I have crystal. Friends who were not allowed to watch it. Yeah, but kind of like the dark crystal, which is why my evangelical friends were not allowed to watch it. Is it doesn't have a binary structure to it. It has a. It all needs to be in the mix together, right? which is how the indigenous Maya saw the world. And so certain parts of the Bible just didn't translate into Kiche. Yeah. 
Isn't that Man, fascinating? It is fascinating, yeah. So yeah, indigenous well, wisdom has an awful lot to teach us all. And all of us have an indigenous, I, I feel, love y'all, but I feel really sorry for white folks because most white folks have been, in order to get the benefits of whiteness, have been separated from their ancestors, separated from their culture, right? Right, for sure. But if we're able to transcend whiteness and connect to those ancestral practices, my next book's on how connecting with the spiritual and cultural practices of our ancestors can equip us for the work of dismantling white supremacy. So I think about this more than is healthy. But all of us have ancestors who were indigenous to a place, and they actually have an awful lot of wisdom to offer us, almost all of which is non-binary. Okay, now I, now I need your book. It's not coming out until next September. <laughs> all right, well, I'll wait. I have 40 other books to read between then. <laughs> so we, we were having a conversation with back, uh, Baxter and, uh, Baxter Kruger. And, uh, unfortunately we did not record this part of the, of our conversation, but he started delving into the Celtic faith, which yeah. is for Nat and me, a very strong connection. We're both, you know, yeah. our, our, our culture or our ethnicity is Irish and then would go back to the Celts and all that. And, yes. um, and this, and again, yes, this idea of, of wholeness and connection to the earth, which now, because, you know, Christianity has to be binary or whatever you want to call it, can't have that connection, right? So we lose that connection of this, of this interconnectedness with nature and the cosmos and all of that. And, um, so it really like, it strikes a chord when, when you really like, if you take a moment and really think about what you're hearing, it's like reading books on indigenous cultures here in, in our country. And mm-hmm. it, it really, for me, it really strikes a chord as to how connected they are to the earth and to the environment and to the universe in, in at large. And, um, I think you're right. I think whiteness, our, our need to be white before anything else, um, has, has separated us from this connection. And, uh, and we, we have been raised in a way that tells us that it's more important to be white than it is to connect to a culture of any kind. And it's, it's sad. And it does, it creates this uh, level of white supremacy that just is, it's an unhealthy. I mean, obviously unhealthy. I know we're running out of time, but I want to, I just want to come back one, one minute to your, cause I, I don't want to, I don't want to leave that conversation about the McDonald's thing without talking a little bit about this, this notion of white supremacy when, because I, you know, I have to be completely honest and say that I thought I was saying the right thing at the time. And now I'm looking back and going, how, how arrogant I was when I was like, so people are complaining about poor wages. And they're working at McDonald's. So you, I'm going to use McDonald's because that's the one you and, you... and I'm like, well, that's because McDonald's was never supposed to be a job for a career. That was, that was my uh-huh. stance, right? Uh-huh. That's not uh-huh. a career. Uh-huh. If, you, if, you've, if you've chosen McDonald's as your career, somewhere in your life you've messed up. That's the stance right. I took, right? And right. how white... How, how, I mean, there's so, level, so many levels of white supremacy <laughs> to that one statement that I just said and that I stood on for so long. Sure. And then it's like, okay, well, who else is going to hire them? Right. You know, there are so many places out there who go through applications and when they see a name they don't understand or they can't pronounce, how many just say, okay, I'm not going to hire, I'm not, I'm not even going to call them because I don't even know how to yep. pronounce their name. And so there's this level of 
like, oh, well, you know, they've done something wrong. And that's why they are 40 years old working mm-hmm. at McDonald's. And we don't, yeah. we don't take the moment to step back and say, are, are we potentially the problem here? Are we the cause of right. this? You know, right. did we, I mean, we have, and I'm talking about we white people, specifically white middle-aged men, heterosexual men, hey. right? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> And you know, and, and I'm feeling attacked. Good. Often with a certain level of educational attainment, right? Right. Which means not having friends who actually McDonald's is about the only career option available. Yeah. Right. So I just, you know, I wanna I wanna invite our listeners to really think more about what they're saying when they say things like what I used to say, which was like, well, hey, if they are working if they're forty years old and they're still working at McDonald's, you know, what bad life choices do they make? Right. right. That's well, and re- and regardless, they should be paid a living wage. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. But but you know what, John? Was it Felicia Merle who we had on who talked about we we got on the issue of, of white supremacy to to some extent, and she made a really interesting. I think it was her, Felicia. If you're listening, I hope it was you. If it wasn't, I'm sorry. But um, she made the point that white supremacy sort of has its roots in and us viewing whiteness as the norm by which everything else is then measured against. Right. Absolutely. And that was very intentionally constructed that way. So a, so, a, so a person like me can feel like, listen, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And yet there could be, and there is probably, a very underlying sort of foundation of, yeah, but white is the norm. Right. And I measure right. everything against that norm. And now, now, now this is the standard and anything else is a deviation from that. And that, that, that creates problems of its own. Right. And actually, probably more insidious, possibly, than just outright racism, because it's harder to identify, because people like me can pat ourselves on the back and say, what? Yeah. No, I don't, I, I like all people, you know, and I do. But <laughs> And that's the thing is, um, because racism is actually about systems and structures rather than just about individual interactions, um, I think... And and simultaneously, we're told that what matters is just the individual actions. Although, don't get me wrong, there's lots of individual race-prejudiced actions that are horrible to happen. But we sometimes think, because at least I'm not conscious of doing any of that interpersonal race prejudice, that I'm I'm not racist. And racism is actually about a system that's set up to benefit some people at a cost to others. Right. And that was that was baked into the origins of this country. Uh, and yeah. that's that's a hard thing for us to wrestle with. A really good example is, and this is a this is this isn't a company specific. This is this is a governmental piece of paper that um, you know I, I'm I'm part of the hiring process of where I work. Okay, and so there's a there's a piece of paper that that shows that you're allowed to or not allowed to work in this country. And one of the questions is, are you a man or a woman? And I had a gentleman, I had, a, I'm sorry, I, I almost messed up there too. I had a person who did not identify as a ma- male or female. Yeah. And the yeah. paper did not have an option for them. It yep. Didn't. Yep. He's like, I, or they, sorry, I, I, there I go. I, you know, this is, this is, a, this is something I'm still working on, right? That I'm, I'm yeah. trying to work on that, the, the gender specific titles. So they don't have an option to say that. Right. So where we had to reach out to the agency that writes, that makes this piece of paper and says, okay, what do we do here? Yeah. Literally, their answer is you put down what they look like to you. Yep. Wow. That's their answer. So because this yep. person looked male, 
on yep. this government piece of paper, I have yep. to identify this person as a male, even though they do not identify as a male. And if they look female... Yep. And the same thing happens with race. Uh, there's actually, this yeah. is actually how people are trained, is if somebody refuses to check off the race box, then check it off for them based on what your best guess is, which is often going to be wrong. But um, yeah. Yeah, so this notion that we can opt out of the system, the system is actually that rigidly put in place and funding relies on it and distribution right. of resources relies on it and all sorts of things. Necessary health benefits rely on it. Right, so it's not something just so trivial as, well, just check a box and get on with it, right? Yeah. And I think we often think that if I learn how to be nicer to everybody around me, it solves the problem, but it doesn't solve a problem like the one you're talking about, John. Right. Um, it's, it really does require us to look at systems that are in place. And I think the shocking part for me was so we reached out right through email and asked them what to do. And they honestly, they acted as if they had never heard this question before. I know. And I'm like, okay, hold on. I live in Eureka, California, a population yep. of 28,000 people. You're telling yep. me my little city in <laughs> California is the first city who's ever asked you this question? I find right. that very, very hard to believe. <laughs> so you're just, yeah. you're choosing to ignore it. You're choosing to not correct a situation that would be so easy to fix. I mean, so easy. But yep. instead, we're going to ignore it because the underlying whatever prejudice about it is that we want to put you in a box, right? You either need to be male or you need to be female. And that's just the way this country or this world or this whatever works. And we're finding out slowly and a little too slow that that's not how this works. And it's never yeah. how this works. Yep. And it's just, it's, it's, it's frustrating. But at the same time, you know, I, I see hope. I really do. Yes. I see, yes. I see people pushing back like this person who said, you know, had, had the, had the strength to say, Hey, you know, I don't fit either one of these options. Right. Where's the option yep. for me? You know, 10 years ago, I think, I think quietly. They would have just let you check the, the check box. The box would have yep. been checked. Yeah. And so it's, I do find hope in that people are being, finding the courage or the, the strength to say, no, I don't fit into one of these boxes and you need to help me figure out where, where, where there's a box for me to check. I completely agree. Well, and they're being empowered by people like Shonda. Absolutely. Who are Absolutely. coming alongside them and saying, listen, you don't have to take this. Right. Like there are options for you. Let's let, let us, let us, um, let us, let us work on that. your behalf. Thank you. And so, yeah. um, yeah. I love, I love the fact that there are people like you who are willing to um, to push back on the system as well. I, I can't let you go though without asking you one more question that's completely unrelated. No, not completely, but it's going to feel like a, like a weird segue. But a little birdie told me that you're starting a podcast and I wanted to get... Yes! Uh, uh, you, come on, you're not, you need to talk about this podcast because I am fascinated so, by the subject matter. I won't even say it. I'm going to let you talk about it. That's awesome. So I'm a huge fan of this cartoon series that you all probably have watched called, or you may have watched called Avatar The Last Airbender. Not the movie. I feel like it's real clear. Oh, yeah. Not the movie, right? Yes, yes. What yeah, I yeah, have discovered the is there is this whole network of people of color who really feel seen by it. Now, it was made by two white guys as kind of their tribute to anime. But like, there is something about it that just makes, helps us feel seen. And so I'm really, uh, I'm really excited in the new year to be launching a podcast specifically about um, people of color's experience of Avatar The Last Airbender and how it connects to our sense of identity. Um, that is the show. Wow. 
See, and that's a show that I'll be listening to. Absolutely. And I think that desperately needs to be uh, be out there. I, I just, as soon as the, the little birdie who's not going to get yet another mention today, she's had enough. Um, but as soon as, she, as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I need to, oh, yeah. I'm so excited oh, for yeah. that. I just, and I just like, um, you're a, you're a, you're an amazing and engaging person. I can't, I, I obviously this is going to be a humongous success, this <laughs> podcast. Even if just John and me listen to it, it'll it. be, it'll, we'll, we'll make we can sure. cross promote. No, I think it's, yes, <laughs> oh yeah, for can, sure. Oh, Absolutely. I just, I just love, I, I don't know. It's, it's a little outside, it's a little out of the box and I love that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, no, I just, oh, when she mentioned that, I just mean, I, I knew we had to, we had to talk about it. If it wasn't for my kids, I don't. I don't think I would even watch the show. I think it was my youngest son who like really pushed oh, me to watch right. it, and uh, I think I binged watched it over maybe a week. It was it was really fast. I mean, because I just couldn't stop. It's so it's, it's so good. It is. It's so good. And yeah, and like you said, anybody who thinks the movie is in any way connected, I mean, it <laughs> is. But if you've ever watched a movie that it was so blatantly obvious that the director or the writer never watched the actual show, this is proof that that <laughs> actually can still happen. I watched that movie and I was so disgusted with what they did to to a very, very yeah. good show and then turn it into a horrible, horrible movie. movie. Horrible. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I will definitely be listening to that. I can't, I, I can't wait for that. Yeah. I'm, that's cool? really awesome. I thought that was yes. cool, man. I, I, that held was that very back. Cool. I held that back to the last a little bit of, you know, a little it. something for you, a little gravy yeah. on, the, on the end here for you. But uh, I knew going in, Shonda, that I would enjoy this. I, I had no idea how much I would enjoy it. So um, thank you for, Absolutely. for, uh, for thank coming you. on and just being an, a wonderful guest. Um, so engaging and so interesting. It has been huge. It's been so much fun. Thank you all yeah. so much for having me. I've really been enjoying the show, so it's really a gift to get to be on it. Well, I appreciate that. John and I, um, we just we just love having these conversations, and I, and I love the fact that we don't always know where they're going to go. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. we, just, we just toss ourselves <laughs> upon the current and see where it takes us, um, and it usually takes us interesting places. But we will make sure and link to all your all your stuff in the show notes. Um, oh, fabulous. I know you've got a book coming out next year. You've had other books that are already out. You should go um, wherever you buy books and buy all of them. If you enjoyed our conversation about the Bible, you'll love my 365-day biblical devotional. Go get it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, love. We just got chastised by one of our people inside of our private group. He's like, you got to stop it. You keep putting these people on the show and I keep having to go out and buy their books because they get so interested. <laughs> now they have this giant stack of books. Just stop it. I'm like, well, no, we're not going to stop it. We're going to keep having fascinating people on there. And uh and, and yeah, he's telling you to have more boring guests. Yeah, exactly. Or people who don't write books. Maybe just maybe have somebody who hasn't written so a book. If he doesn't buy my book, then maybe don't tell me because I, I will be really sad. <laughs> <laughs> he'll, be the, he'll be one of the ones in a, in, a, in a, whenever this releases, I'll get another message from him going, well, crap. There goes, I got to buy another one now. Yeah. <laughs> no, but no, we, we appreciate the work that you do. We appreciate yeah. um, you yeah. coming on the show and, and just being awesome. So. Um, and thank Thanks you. Thanks to both of you. Yeah, yeah, appreciate you. John, any parting words, sir? No, I think they've all been said. <laughs> <laughs> We've said all the words. We've said all the words. There are no more words left. There are no more words to use. <laughs> thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch. 
where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.